All right, good morning, City Light. How are we doing? Good morning. Good morning. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, a few couple things before we get into the word. Number one, there should be a connect card on your seat. If you're new, please fill that out. You can drop it off on your way out in the front or the back. Uh, we would love to exchange the connect card with a black box sealed that can only be unbroken by you. And so we would love to bless you with that. So please make that exchange. If you are here and you've been coming, but you have refused to get known and you want to avoid that as much as possible, stop all that foolishness today. Uh, you cannot make this life on your own. You are doing yourself no service whatsoever to come in and come out and pretend like we don't know that you exist. And so please fill out that card, give it to us. I promise we will not bite or anything like that. We want to bless you, okay? So uh, please do that this morning. Uh, we have an, uh, our fall festival coming up on October 30th. Woo, woo! So we're excited about that. It's going to be a great day. Last year's was awesome. It's going to be a great time. It's from 3 to 5. It's going to be in the field over here. Uh, it's going to be, listen, the whole pumpkin thing. You can take pictures, your cute little kids and all that. That's going to be great. It'll be kettle corn. It'll be trunk or treat, okay? Uh, Ryan and Rosie might show up as Scooby-Doo and, and uh, the whole Scooby-Doo squad again. It was the most amazing Halloween costume I've ever seen. Um, and whatever it is. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a blessing. So bring your family, bring your friends, bring everybody you know. Obviously, as always, the gospel will go forth and be shared, uh, the most essential thing anyone needs. And so it's going to be a great time. So plan on that October 30th, not only to bless you, family uh, in our congregation, but to bless our community. And so it's going to be an awesome time. So be there. Uh, the second thing I wanted to let you know about, I want to show you this sign. You may have seen one in the, in the yards nearby. So here's the sign. It says, City Light Church, no parking. Thank you for not parking in front of our house. And then it has a nice core value of ours. We're all in this together. So um, the, we gave these out last week. So just so you know, if you've seen this, not because our neighbors were mad and they came up with a sign themselves, uh, we, we gave these signs to them, okay? Uh, and so last week, just so you know, uh, me and the staff, the interns, uh, we took a day and took some time and we, we printed off enough of these and we went across this whole back street here and the street across the, the way that we park into. Uh, just because we had heard a few times uh, that there were obviously some parking issues and things going on, which we know. So we just wanted to be a blessing to our neighbors. We wanted to communicate with them that we do not want to be a burden, we want to be a blessing. We are glad people are coming to church. We think that's a good thing, but we also don't want to annoy you with parking. And so we want to do the best we could just to communicate and be like, hey, look, I know this might be a problem. It might have frustrated you before. That is not our intent. Our heart is to love and to bless. And so we made these signs to give them control over their own situation uh, that we told them they could put out in front of their yard in case they didn't want people to park in front of their house. Uh, it was cool because most people didn't even take the sign and most people were not upset. Uh, I've learned in many and probably many of you have learned in leadership that when someone says everyone, they usually mean one person. So, uh, you know, someone comes to me and says, everyone's upset. I have learned to say who. And then they'll say one name, and then I have learned to say who else. And that's usually the end of it. And then I have to explain to them, well, one is the opposite of everyone. Let's just be clear on this. Uh, and so those of you who have led anything, you probably know Obviously, those of you who are married know not to speak in extremes. They teach you don't say never and always. You know, these are not hopeful. Uh, it's not true that they never do this. It's not true they always do this. Uh, and so these things are, are funny to me. So we've had a few, a few things come up to our attention. Nobody's been too, too upset. Uh, we want to bless our neighbors. So if you've seen this, number one, no, we've given it to them. Number two, please do not park there, okay? So if you, we did all that work to say, hey, we love you. If you park where the sign is, you will nullify the entire thing yourself. And you shouldn't be scared of the wrath of Nate, but the wrath of God might be on your life uh, because you have sinned against the Lord and his church. So uh, please do not park where you see one of these signs, all right? Please don't do that. Uh, we want to bless our neighbors. Amen? Amen. Okay. And so uh, we're, we're trying to figure out solutions with shuttling or using the, the elementary road, and we're working on it. So if any of you are strategic geniuses, please let me know. Uh, we cannot build a parking garage in the, back, in the backyard back here. So, uh, so please uh, be patient with us as we figure that out. Now, today, uh, we're going to go a little bit off script this morning. Well, not a little bit, all the way off script this morning. Um, I want you to open your Bible to 1 Kings 19. Hey, let's go. Let's go. 1 Kings 19. Now, we were supposed to be in Ecclesiastes 4 through 6 this morning, and I had prepared a sermon about money, you know, which everybody loves to talk about, uh, which is what most of that section of Ecclesiastes is about. 
and I want to uh, let, I'm going to take the next several minutes to let you in on, on kind of what I feel like the Lord's been telling me this morning and what he wants us to do. Um, this week, obviously last week, uh, we preached from Ecclesiastes 3, which was on schedule, but it also was very pertinent to my life and things that I was learning. And so I was able to share from my heart about it, but also we were on schedule. Now, um, I have never gotten as much feedback from anything ever as that particular message, and it seemed like the Lord was really uh, using it, hopefully used it in your life, uh, in a particular way, and he's using my own personal experiences as I was sharing. Uh, you know, the week, a couple weeks before, it was like somebody had pulled a blanket over my life, and I just kind of fell into this pit of sorrow very um, unexpectedly, not in response to any crazy event. Uh, and so I was learning to navigate that. A couple of weeks later, I felt better. This last week has really been up and down. When somebody asked me how I'm doing, I was saying, that's a good, there's a good days and bad days. And so I'm kind of learning to wrestle with this. You know, it's not a five-day thing, and I'm done. And so uh, I'm in the middle of learning what the Lord wants me to learn in the middle of that. And so now here's, here's an interesting thing about being a preacher is obviously the Lord's always kind of teaching things. I'm reading things personally. Obviously not everything he tells me, I tell you. Uh, and so you're always walking that balance between um, if the Lord's sharing with me something, does he want me to share that with you? Uh, if I did that every week, it would be left and right, left and right. This wouldn't be helpful for you. A church needs consistency, and uh, we don't need to operate according to just you know, my feelings and my personal experiences. So uh, there's always that balance between I want to give consistency with the Word of God, uh, because as we know, God speaks and leads through plans as much as he does through spontaneous things he's doing in the moment. And so the plans he has given us, we believe are from the Lord. The text he wants us to be in is from the Lord. And so I want to stay committed to that regardless of necessarily how I'm feeling. So I was processing this week uh, what he wanted to do. I had the text, Ecclesiastes 4 through 6, coming up. I began to think about it. Now, on Tuesday, my wife actually led the staff Devo on Tuesday. And because of that, it was the best staff Devo we've ever had. And so i um, very thankful for her. She did a great job. And as we were going through that, the staff Devo was on 1 Kings 19. And it was it really helped me. And it was very pertinent to my current situation in life. And so all week, I had been reading, studying, just doing all the work I could personally on 1 Kings 19, trying to learn because it was blessing me. Now, I had asked the Lord, well, is that? what do you want me to do with that? Do you want us to go to 1 Kings 19 this week? Or, you know, what should we do? Do I need to kind of step out of that? Church needs consistency. Or do I need to step into that? And uh, I was even Friday night, my wife and I had a date night. Thanks to God for parent night. Who was here for parent night? Wow. <laughs> do all the parents come to the nine? The nine erupted. Like parent night was the greatest thing I'd ever heard of in my life. Okay, we had parents night out which was amazing, and so all these parents dropped their kids off and went on a date. I told Valerie, um, who's our kids director, that this now must, there's in high demand that this is a weekly thing, okay? So, you know, every Friday night, I didn't put it in the job description when we hired her, but, you know, it's going to be necessary now. That's a joke. We're not going to do it every Friday night, but uh, I, wish we, I wish we could, maybe one day. Um, it was a blessing. I was, I was walking with my wife, even, that night, and just talking through, like, I'm so torn. Do I... I still don't know. It's Friday. I have to preach on Sunday. Do I share 1 Kings 19 or do I continue to work on Ecclesiastes 4 through 6? I want consistency. I don't know. And eventually I landed on, okay, we need consistency. And I think there was a reason for that. One was uh, I didn't want to cry today. And I thought if I preach about money, I'm not going to cry. So that's going to be helpful to me. I cannot be so emotional. Number two, uh, I thought maybe if, if I move forward, we can all move forward. And it'll help me move forward and it'll be good for the church. So that's kind of where I ended up. And so I made a message. I sent it in last night. Um, Brian made all the slides. Wonderful. And we're not going to use any of them. So everyone say thank you, Brian, for all your work. It is not in vain. Uh, uh, maybe next week. Maybe we'll use them next week. I have no idea. But uh, this morning, okay, I'm just going to help you think this. One of the things we say a lot around here that we want to be as a church is we call it being led by the Spirit. This is what it says in, in Romans 8. All who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. And so we try, to, we try intentionally to live that kind of way. And so uh, this morning I felt an overwhelming sense, um, probably around 8.15, that I should do 1 Kings 19. And I thought, well, this is really late. This is bad timing. Like, um, I asked the Lord, like, why didn't you tell me on Friday? I mean, we've been in discussion all week. This has been an open conversation. I thought we had settled it. Like, what in the world? I, I, it felt like the Lord was speaking so clearly, not audibly, just in my spirit, like, this is what you need to do. And I thought, why? <laughs> you know, why didn't you tell me on Friday? And I really felt like the Lord, one of the things he told me this morning was that I wanted you to trust me. 
It was very significant for me because um, I love preparing a message. I feel like that's one of the things God has given me a gift to do. You know, I bring all my Dr. Seuss phrases to the table. They rhyme. You remember them. Uh, and I wasn't able to do any of that this morning. I wasn't able to bring any of um, what I would consider some of my skills to the table. Uh, and all I have is my heart and what the Lord has taught me this week and the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I've heard someone say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And I think that's a really wise thing to think through and say. Uh, somewhat of a risk this morning, obviously, because I don't have anything prepared or planned out in such a way that I would be confident in. But I have felt an overwhelming sense from the Lord this morning. This is what we're supposed to do. It was confirmed uh, before the first service about 9, 10, uh, just standing there wrestling with the Lord, and I just settled it. And I said, uh, he said, I wanted you to trust me. And I said, okay, okay, I'll trust you. And so we're going to dive into that this morning uh, and hopefully speak to you from my heart. And so as we, as we learn to walk by the Spirit, one of the reasons I would do something like this is hopefully give you an example of what I mean. Uh, there's some things that happened this morning that have led me to this conclusion. Number one, there's an overwhelming sense in my spirit. I, I am walking with the Lord. I do read the Bible. I do pray. I am, I am seeking the Lord. And so at some sense, I can trust uh, when he seems to really be overwhelming me with the direction. And so I, I discern that. I don't always just go by it, but I test it. I ask people. Uh, and so I felt that from the Lord this morning. No audible voice, but an overwhelming sense from his spirit um, that I should do this. Uh, the second thing that makes me assured about it is obviously it's still confirming the word of God. We're going we're gonna to walk through the scriptures, not through my feelings or my ideas. Uh, another thing that has confirmed me about this um, is that faith is spelled R-I-S-K, and that to walk by the Spirit doesn't mean you always know the outcome or even know whether you're making the right decision. It's an attempt to trust the Lord. And I think we ought to live that way more consistently. The last thing that has proved it the most is the only reason I would do this is for you. Because I had a message that was prepared, and you'd hear it, and you'd probably say, oh, good job, Pastor, you know, thanks for that word this morning. Nobody would think a second thing, and you'd go to lunch, and hopefully the Lord would speak to you. And this situation now, the only reason I would do this right now is because I feel compelled by the Lord and because I think it might be for your benefit. There's nothing, literally nothing for me to gain about this. As a matter of fact, I could only look foolish by by uh, giving you a word that, that I, I didn't prepare and plan as well as I knew I, I could. And so in light of those things, because I know it is for you and I know the Lord is leading, I feel um, compelled to follow the Spirit in that way this morning. Uh, and so we're trusting God to lead this time together. And so this will in some sense be a stream of consciousness. There will be some things on the screen because during the first service, Brian was typing away, trying to, trying to keep up with me, uh, working hard back there. And so let's look at 1 Kings 19. Um, and I hope to bless you this morning, some of you who might be in a deep darkness, some of you who might just be struggling with the circumstances of life, some of you who might have doubts that you're trying to deal with before the Lord, some of you who might be at a tipping point, some of you who might know somebody in that situation, some of you who might feel just like I do and, and I'm struggling with now like there's a blanket over your life, you don't quite even know why. Um, I want to give you a word this morning that the Lord has given me. I hope it blesses your soul. So 1 Kings 19, let's read it through verse 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, what is he referring to? Let me throw you back. The last chapter basically overviews one of the greatest prophetic victories in the history of the Old Testament where Elijah goes up to a mountaintop. He battles the king and a bunch of false gods. They have a fire competition, and Elijah basically stands alone and says, if your God is true, set an altar and ask him to bring fire. If my God is true, I'm going to set an altar and ask him to bring fire. And whoever's God brings fire wins. And so Elijah stakes his whole life on this, him versus the world, basically. The king, the false prophets, they're all there. Because things that don't exist can't send fire. Obviously, nothing happened when they cried out. And when, when Elijah prayed, because his God is the true God, fire comes down from heaven. It soaks everything up. Uh, the false prophets get slaughtered, and there's this great victory. Not only that, but then after that happens, he had been praying for three and a half years that it would not rain as a sign of judgment on the land of Israel because of their disobedience to God, particularly the king, King Ahab. Now the Lord leads him to pray for rain. And so he prays, and after three and a half years of drought, rain comes down. And so now imagine this. He has, in a very, very short window of time, called down fire from heaven and had one of the greatest victories known to man. And then he has called down rain from heaven and personally, by the power of God, ended a three-and-a-half-year drought. That's the situation he finds himself in now. 
And you're gonna see how wild this is that after those great victories, he runs away in fear and becomes depressed. This is very interesting for your human condition. So this is where he's at. This is what that first verse is talking about. So then Jezebel, who's Ahab's wife, sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. So she's threatening to kill him. Then he was afraid. After he just saw fire and rain come from heaven, then he was afraid. He arose and he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and sat down under a broom tree. So he leaves his servant. He keeps walking for another day. He's alone in the wilderness under a tree. He sits down and he asks that he might die. So he goes from fire on the mountain, victory over his enemies, to being suicidal. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a head, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and he lay down. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time, and he touched him, and he said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of the Lord forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God, which is the place Moses received the Ten Commandments. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, This is the question he's going to be asking many of you this morning. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains, and it broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But after the earthquake, a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the, name, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We'll stop there. And I want to start with this question from the Lord in verse 9. What are you doing here? This has been the question that I have responded to the most with the Lord this week because he's not just asking, what are you doing here under the broom tree? He's asking, why are you here? What is it about your life and your feelings and your mental state and your situation that has led you into this current position? What are you doing here? It would do you well to spend some time this week answering that question. What are you doing here? What are you doing in this current, current, in all your feelings? What are you doing there? Why? Why? What's going on? What are you doing here in your habits, your way of life? Why are you living that way? What are you doing here? What are you doing here with the way you're thinking about yourself, the way you're thinking about others? What are you doing here? What are you doing here with your habits and your way of life, with your current situation? What are you doing here? not just literally in terms of your position and status in life, but the why behind the what. And to really take some time to search some things out in your life and to begin to answer that question with the Lord because we are all somewhere, yet we haven't really thought about why we're there very much. And so the Lord is asking you and he's asking me all week. I have spent the majority of my time in the Word this week journaling and answering that question 
trying to answer it as best I can. What are some things I can discern? What are some things that have been happening in my life? What are some things that the Lord might be teaching me? Why, why do I feel the way that I feel as best as I can understand? What am I doing here? And some of you haven't even began to answer that question with the Lord. Now, I love the truth about this that I've seen so clearly this week and that we discussed in staff meeting is that God already knows the answer to the question. God knows more about Elijah's current state than Elijah does. God knows more about how Elijah feels than Elijah does. God knows more about his situation than Elijah does. God already knows the future, so he knows exactly what Elijah's gonna say. So why is God asking a question? As a matter of fact, you should read all throughout the Gospels. Jesus, one of Jesus' things is he, he asks way more questions than he gives other answers. He's always asking questions. Why is Jesus always asking questions when he already knows the answer to the question? Why is God asking Elijah a question when he already knows more about the answer than Elijah does? Why? And I think it's as simple as this, is that God wants to open a dialogue with Elijah. It's like this. It's a simple phrase that God wants to talk to you. God wants to talk to you. Instead of stuffing those things down, God wants you to bring them to him and express them. Instead of assuming God already knows what you think, God wants you to say it. So many times in our life, we just neglect this, this, in this engagement with the Lord because well, he already knows, and he already knows how I feel, and he already knows what I think, and he already knows why, why, why. Well, because God wants to be in a personal relationship with you. He wants to talk to you. God wants to open a dialogue with you this morning. God wants to open a dialogue with you today. God, as we see in the Psalms, can handle all of your feelings, all of your doubts, all of your frustrations, even if they are with him. God wants to open a dialogue with you this morning. He wants to talk to you. And for those of you who are here and you're not in Christ, you haven't believed and trusted in his death and resurrection for your sins, this is one of the greatest things God wants to do for you is through faith in Christ, he wants to open up and begin a personal relationship with you. The God of the universe who oversees billions of people and rules the world wants to speak to you. And he wants to hear what you have to say to him. Have you opened a dialogue with God? This is God's intention. So what are you doing here? This is what I've tried to navigate, and as I've been listening to some of uh, what the Lord is saying through this, I've come to a few conclusions that have helped me uh, learn about God, learn about the character of God, and helped me navigate my current situation in life and the things that I might be wrestling with with the Lord and in life in general and the ups and downs of my days. The first thing is this. Um, God is a whole-body God. This is very helpful and encouraging, especially to someone like me as a pastor who tends to over-spiritualize. Look at this first. Look at this. Elijah is depressed and suicidal, and God offers him cake. It's right there. You know what we would do? What I would do? Well, here's a word for you, brother, you know. God is faithful, and absolutely those things count, and you should say them. But look, you have to think about this. Elijah's depressed, suicidal, running for his life, afraid, and the first thing God does is offer him cake. Verse 6, and he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and he lay down. So what is, what is God's first response to Elijah's spirit, what we would call an emotional, spiritual, mental crisis? is to offer him food and water and to let him sleep a little bit. Isn't that so interesting? God is a whole body God. I want you to know this morning that God cares about how your body feels and the aches and pains that you are experiencing. God cares very much about your mental state and the struggles you might be having in your mind. God cares very much about your emotional state and the things you might be going through up and down. God is a whole body God. And sometimes you have over-spiritualized things with your friends and with yourself when what you're supposed to be doing is eating some cake. Going to get some ice cream, you know. One of the ways I love my wife, you know, as I go get her some ice cream, I know, you know. And this stuff matters. Now, obviously, the spiritual condition of your soul is of the utmost importance. And the things God wants to do and reveal to you is of the utmost importance to bless your soul. But what if God intends to care for your body and your soul? And what if part of his care for your body is providing the things that you need on a daily basis? You've been so stressed out. Maybe you should just start eating some cake. Not too much, but 
I think this is very important that when God shows up, he lets Elijah sleep, he gives him some food and water. That's God's initial response to Elijah's mental health crisis, his depression and suicidal thoughts. We could learn from that. God wants to bless you and care for you. This is why we stay often at City Light. God, we want to bring real hope and real help. Holistic help, body and soul. We built this church off of Luke 4 when Jesus reveals what he wants to do and how he wants to do his ministry. When he does that, he refers back to Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, we see him say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news and bind up broken hearts. Both things. He's gonna restore body and soul. You're gonna bring praise for heaviness, joy for mourning. He's gonna do all of these things in your life and he's gonna restore the devastations of many generations. This is what the Lord is after. And so we do a dangerous disservice when we over-spiritualize. Now, some of you are doing a dangerous disservice of under-spiritualizing, and we want to also understand that. But God is a whole-body God. What I also love about this is that not only does God um, understand, but he can sympathize as one who understands from an experiential level. You know what Isaiah 53 says, and this has blessed my heart, that Jesus it was a man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. That'll bless, I'm telling you. God is not disconnected from your grief. As a matter of fact, he not only understands it cognitively, he understands it emotionally and experientially. Jesus became a man so that he could sympathize with your grief. So if you're in a place of grief this morning, Jesus can sympathize with you. And he wants to give you some cake. What a good friend. What a wonderful counselor. Don't over-spiritualize. So Jesus comes and he reveals to us that God is a whole body God. I want you to know that so desperately. God cares about how your mind is doing. God cares about how your heart is feeling. God cares about the situations of your life. He cares about the pain in your body. God cares. He cares. And certainly he cares about your faith and he very much so cares about your soul because that is the most important thing about you, but that doesn't dismiss everything else. Just want you to know that this morning and be blessed and feel cared for by God. So God is a whole body God. God is a whole body God. Now as we continue to think through this, one of the things I was thinking about is that God does not despise our weaknesses. This is very encouraging to me. God does not despise our weaknesses. Now, here's what we do. We take how we would respond, and we assume that God's a little better version of that. Right? So what does Elijah do? God comes through for Elijah. God gives Elijah a great victory. God really does an amazing thing. He sends fire from heaven, for goodness sakes, through Elijah. Elijah conquers, and he's victorious. And it seems like the very next day, he falls into a depression, and he's mad at God. What does he say? Man, all these people have left you, and I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that cares about you. I'm the only one, and you're going to let them kill me too. He's mad at God, and God just did all this for him. And you know what we would think? You know how I used to read this passage is God is frustrated with Elijah. This passage is a rebuke, but no, 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 it's not. It's not. It's a word of counsel. This is an amazing thing. We take how we would be, you know, so this is like when you're a parent, and your kids are frustrated, or they feel ungrateful, and you're like, I literally give you everything. You would be dead if I didn't exist. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you talking about? You have a hundred toys, and you're going to be upset about that one? Like, come on, you know? And then we look at God, and we read this, and we're like, oh, God must be frustrated with Elijah. Because that's what I would be. I've done all this for you, and you're going to be sad? As a matter of fact, you're going to be mad at me? I just sent down fire from heaven and saved your butt from dying. You're going to be mad at me? That's how we think. That's not what God does. Oh, this is such a word for some of you, especially those who burden yourself. I've been talking to some people these last few weeks, and they keep telling me I'm, I'm too hard on myself. And part of the struggle with me has been that I recognize that I am so amazingly, abundantly blessed by God. That he has been so faithful to me. 
And I could testify to God's faithfulness and faithfulness and faithfulness. So why in the world am I upset? That kind of thought will drive you nuts for a little while. I have no right to be upset. Yeah, there's some loss. There's some things I'm struggling with. But God has been so good to me. How could I ever be upset with him and some of the things he's chosen to do or not do? How many of you might be feeling that way this morning or thought about that? And then you think, well, God must be frustrated with me. Maybe he's a little annoyed with my lack of gratefulness. But no, 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 hear me. Oh, hear me. God does not despise your weaknesses. As a matter of fact, he loves to show compassion to you. One of his most favorite things to do. Just like a doctor enjoys prescribing medicine for the sick, he does not begrudge when someone is sick. He does not get upset about it. But it is his joy and pleasure to bless them with medicine that is helpful. So it is with the Lord. He loves to, be, to bless you with the medicine of compassion. When he sees your sickness, even if it is sin, he comes to you with a heart of love and compassion to bless you with his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. This is God's heart towards you. He does not despise your weaknesses. He does not despise your weaknesses, even those that would be categorized as sin struggles. He does not despise your weaknesses. He died for those. He paid the price for your sin. He wants to show compassion to you. Uh, one of my favorite verses, Psalm 103, 14, says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, and he knows that we are but dust. The reason God loves to show compassion is because of your weakness, not in spite of it. Your weakness is an opportunity for God to show compassion to you. He is not frustrated with you in that way. What a blessing to know that God's heart is this. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34 in one of the most central and important passages in Scripture, and he comes and he reveals his glory to Moses, the very first thing he says about himself which we should take note of. He doesn't say, I, the Lord, am great and mighty and worthy to be praised, which is true. But he says, I am the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. What a blessing that the Lord wants to reveal that as his heart primarily. He certainly is a God of wrath. He certainly is a God who punishes evil. But first and foremost, I am the Lord, slow to anger, slow to get frustrated, slow to be annoyed with you, you know, slow to any of that, and quick to give compassion and mercy. It is his joy and pleasure to bless you in your deepest and darkest moments. He's not frustrated with you this morning. Your lack of inability to get it together and to change your situation or your habits. He is a God of compassion and mercy. You know, I have learned a lot about this um, from a book called Gentle and Lowly, which I would highly recommend. It has dramatically even shifted some of the way I even have thought about God, how he has revealed himself first and foremost as a, a God who is compassionate and merciful. Uh, I recommend that book highly to you. One of the things I'm continuing to learn, uh, even as you think about your weakness as a sin struggle and that God hates sin, which is very true, and that sin is so bad that it can send you all the way to hell separated from God forever. So I'm not dismissing the fact that sin is terrible and that if you're stuck in those habits, it isn't no big deal. But what we're beginning to understand, as the scripture says, is that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his compassion that not only blesses us, but then leads us out of the sin that's beholding us. You see how this works? It isn't his anger that leads you to repentance, it's his kindness. And so we can both receive and understand God's hatred for sin, his hatred for some of my life habits, his hatred for the way that I've been living certain ways. You know, all of you say, well, his hatred for these things, I'm not dismissing that. But I'm learning and learning more so God's first and foremost response as a first responder is compassion. 
and love and mercy. And it is that very act of compassion, love, and mercy that even helps reveal sin and leads to repentance. Doesn't dismiss it, doesn't pretend like it's not a big deal, but the compassion is the solution. And so God does not despise your weakness. God does not despise your weakness. This has been very helpful to me. Another thing I began to notice about this passage is that God wants to be close enough so that he can speak with a whisper. I've been, I've been asking myself, what does this mean? Why does the Lord reveal himself this way? So, first of all, this is kind of funny. Uh, he asks Elijah a question, what are you doing? Elijah spills his heart out. Rah, 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 rah. And then God's like, go stand over there. That's the first thing he says. Elijah's like, rah! and God's like, go stand over there. Now, he goes and stands over there, and uh, here's something, something beautiful about what the Lord wants to do. Our greatest need is a revelation of Jesus. It isn't an opinion. It isn't advice. It isn't even necessarily counsel. It's a revelation. What does he do with Elijah's depression, anger, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, and fear? He says, stand over there, and I'm going to show myself to you, and I'm going to speak to you. It's our greatest need, everyone in the, in the building and watching online, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. A word spoken from the Father via the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Son. So he comes and he gives him a revelation. And look what he does. Why does he do this? I have been asking the Lord all week. I'm still kind of pondering it. He comes and he does three things first, and they seem kind of meaningless because they don't do anything. He comes by in a strong wind. The wind is so strong it breaks the rocks apart. But then it says, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. So then he brings an earthquake. The Lord wasn't in the earthquake. So then he brings a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after those three things, he comes in a whisper. And there, there is where the Lord is. Why did he not just go straight to the whisper? I don't understand. What is he doing with Elijah? And the best that I can understand in my, my reading and talking to the Lord and trying to discern these things this week is, is a few thoughts. Number one is that... Elijah, I think, has gotten used to the big booms and bangs of the response of God. And he wants to teach Elijah to be still enough to listen for a whisper. It's not this, it's not that, it's not that. That's what you would expect, but it's this. And part of this is that relational aspect. Oh, God is powerful enough to bring the fire. Elijah has seen it. But God doesn't want to just reveal his might and his strength. He wants to speak to him. He wants to engage in a relationship to him. The other thing I began to consider is that what's most needed is not a miraculous sign from the Lord, but a word of the Lord. Now, this is where some of you are getting into troubles because you are constantly looking for some miraculous deliverance or some boom bang in your life, which the Lord can certainly do, and he does, and so we're not dismissing that. But what if you're so set on looking for that as the solution to your struggle that you haven't set your ears and been still to hear the word of God? You want, bam, I'm out, and God's saying, hey, listen to you be still enough to listen to me? I have a word for you this morning. But you got to be still. And you got to be quiet before me. Stop looking for the booms and the bangs and start listening for the whisper. Because it's the word of God that you need. It's the word of God that you need. It isn't that your situation would change, which maybe it will, and maybe God will be glorified in it. But it's the word of God that you need. So he comes and says, you've seen the fire, Elijah, but I'm going to bring a word. And in the midst of your depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, mental health crisis, and fear, what you need is a word from God after you've eaten some cake. He wants to bring a word. Are you still enough to listen to his whisper? The next thing that I want you to see and understand is that, look in, look in verse 14. He, he says the same thing again. So the Lord shows up and says, what are you doing here? He asks him the second time. And Elijah does the same thing. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I am the only one left. 
You know what I began to call this to myself? I wrote it down. I'm calling it mission fatigue. Mission fatigue. Now imagine Elijah's situation. He has laid it all on the field, and he has given it all to, what, to God's call and mission on his life. And he sees a great victory, so he thinks, but he wakes up the next day, and nothing has changed. Nothing. You would think after this moment, King Ahab would appoint Elijah, the leader of the nation. We're following Elijah's God. He's the true God. But he wakes up, and it seems as if none of that has happened. And now Jezebel is in power. She's threatening his life. Ahab's doing nothing about it. And it seems like the people of Israel haven't rallied around the cause. How frustrating would that be? And here's what he says. And here's where many of you are in your life with God. You're telling him, what's the point? I have been praying and praying and praying and praying. And nothing has changed. What's the point? I've tried to share the gospel. I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do. And it seems like nobody receives it, especially these family members that I love. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? I serve and I serve and I serve and then I end up burned out. What's the point, God? What's the point? I'm trying to do all of this for you. I'm trying to serve you and love you. I'm trying to live for you. And it seems like nothing is working and nothing has changed. What is the point? And you've been praying and praying. And you feel like God doesn't hear you anymore. And nothing is changing. And what's the point? You're trying to work on your marriage. You're doing everything you can, but it just won't change. And you say, Lord, what's the point? I'm so over this. Why in the world will we even have the great victory on the mountaintop if nobody would choose to even follow you after that? What's the point? I don't know how many of you are there this morning. You're just saying, Lord, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point? I'm going to call that mission fatigue. You're experiencing mission fatigue this morning, and you're telling the Lord, what's the point? And here's what I want to reveal to you this morning. When Elijah says that to the Lord, we have to remember how important God's first response is. The Lord says, go and return from the way in which you came. Elijah says, this mission is pointless. I'm the only one left. Everything we just did changed nothing. This whole thing is pointless. Why am I alive? Why are we doing this? Why do we keep trying? This is pointless. I'm out. This is pointless. And the Lord looks at Elijah and he says, go back where you came from. And then he gives him three assignments. And the assignments he gives them are to anoint different types of leaders. And what we're going to see from this that is so important, and this is connected to what we talked about last week about seasons, is that maybe, just maybe, the Lord will complete what he's doing in you through someone else. Maybe your season is the one of planting, and the Lord's going to bloom what you planted through someone else in another time. Maybe the point of what you're doing isn't that you could see the fruit of it, isn't that you would be encouraged by it, but faithfulness to God, knowing and trusting that God is going to accomplish his purposes for your life. Maybe all the prayers that you have been praying will be answered after you're dead and gone. Look what he does. He says, Elijah, I want you to go back, and you're going to appoint Hazael, and you're going to appoint Elisha, and you're going to appoint, uh, what's the other one here? Jehu. And all three of these people are going to carry out the mission that I'm giving them, both as king and as prophet. And these are going to take on, so Elisha particularly is going to take on the ministry of Elijah, and God's going to give Elisha a double portion of Elijah's ministry. So now, as you see, not only is one of the greatest prophets of all time, Elijah, a simply stepping stone to a double portion for Elisha that God God is going to bring revival to the people of Israel, and he's going to complete what Elijah started on the mountain after Elijah's gone. What if God's calling you to start something he plans to finish? What if, when you feel pointless, God says this will be completed in my time? What if your season is one of being broken down so something can be built up? What if your season is one of being planted so that something can bloom? What if your season is one of death so that something can come to life and be resurrected? What if your season is the beginning of what God plans to finish in his own time? You say, what's the point? And God says, the point is to trust me. So go back where you came from and appoint the people I'm calling you to appoint and continue the ministry I have given you because it's not about what you see. 
And it's not about what you accomplish, but it's about trust and obedience. Be encouraged this morning that when you say, what's the point? God is ministering to your heart, and he wants to reveal to you that the point is trust and obedience. What if your season is one of planting so something else can bloom? What if God will complete your prayers through another way at another time? You must trust him and know that God will finish what he started, which is a promise from him for you. The last thing that has encouraged me is this. Verse 18, so Elijah's complaint, one of his complaints, right? And this is how a lot of us feel all the time. I'm the only one left. No one understands. This can often be a struggle, even through like decisions like my wife and I make and the kind of lifestyle that we lead to think, man, it's really hard, no, really hard for people to understand this. No one understands. And you feel like, I'm all alone. And how do I navigate this? And what does the Lord say? Elijah says, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, I have saved and set apart 7,000 others that have not bowed to Baal, and they have the same zeal for me that you do. You say, I am alone, and God simply says, no, you are not. Number one, through faith in Christ, you have his presence. God says in Matthew 28, I will be with you till the end of the age. God says in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, though they all left my side, the Lord stood by me. God has not abandoned you. He cannot. You have the Lord. But secondly, as a community of Christ's followers, you have other people and brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm learning that one of the reasons the Lord is taking me through a season like this is for the benefit of not only myself but others that we would resonate and sympathize, that you would be blessed. That you would know you're not alone, you know? I've had people tell me, man, I'm great to hear that pastors struggle too. <laughs> I'm like, well, of course we do. Maybe we should make that more plain, but we're not superheroes. Jesus is the only superhero. You're not alone. You're not alone in your feelings. Some other people are feeling that. You're not alone in feeling like you're serving God and just getting burned out. Many Christians have experienced that before. You're not alone in doubting God's faithfulness. We've all been there. You're not alone in feeling like what's the point in wanting to give up. We're not. We've all been there. Many of us to a varying degrees. You say, I am not. I am alone. And God simply says today, no, you are not. I have set aside others by my divine appointment for you. You know, as I was considering this passage, one of the things I'm began to really resonate with the most is when Elijah's really down, it seems like Jezebel's warning and threat of his life um, is, is what happens, is the, like, the kickoff for that. But I began to consider, I mean, he's had people threaten his life before. This is not new. I mean, he just stood in front of the king and hundreds of others with his life on the line. Sometimes it's not the type of trouble, but the amount. And some of you might be in that place this morning. It's like, that might be how I feel as well. It wasn't like some big final straw, but it was just all I needed was one more feather. Just one more little trouble. Because it wasn't the type, but the amount. And then Elijah says, I have taken hit after hit and experienced struggle after struggle and been through sorrow upon sorrow and I have been fighting for you. I see no progress, and now Jezebel threatens my life, and that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Some of you might be in that place this morning to say it's not necessarily the type, but the amount. And your struggle is that the things begin to add up over time. And the Lord, once again, wants to encourage your heart this morning. He wants to offer you a cake and a word from God to bless you and to encourage you. I want you to ultimately understand that God cares very much about how you are doing. 
God cares very much about what you're going through. God loves you so much. He has a father's heart towards you. And that if you ever wonder if God cares or if God can understand, just look at the cross. Jesus came as the son of God. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead so that you could have victory over the grave in him, so that you could have a sympathetic high priest of a God who can serve and bless you, so that you can serve a God who is great and mighty but also acquainted with grief. And for some of you, the solution isn't mental health counseling right now or any of that kind of work. That's important, and it could be secondary, but the solution for you this morning is to trust in Christ. You cannot move forward in life without following Jesus. You cannot. You cannot. There is no moving forward without following Jesus. So repent and trust in him. He loves you so very much. And to those of you who may be struggling as well, I encourage you again this morning to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because you also cannot move forward apart from following Jesus. And though the solutions may be many and varied, and the situations may be complicated, this I know, that if you fix your eyes on Jesus, he will lead you. Because he is faithful and compassionate towards you. Let's pray. And let's respond to the Lord now. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for your compassion towards us. We thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for your patience, Lord. We thank you that you don't get frustrated with us, God. We thank you that you're so kind and loving. I pray. Um, I just pray that you would bless your people, your, your saints, your children this morning, that they would know your fatherly care for them, that they would sense your love, Lord. I pray that you would give um, each person here, God, wisdom as to how to walk out these days, that you would help them answer the question, what are you doing here? I pray for those who are here and not in Christ, that today would be the day that they receive your love through faith in Jesus. Would you work in all of us? Thank you that you are the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace. And so we love you, we worship you, we surrender our whole lives to you, God. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you all stand? Let's respond to the Lord.